Jesus is coming back. No amens on that. Okay, all right. <laughs> well, that, that statement, that reality, is going to prompt one or two feelings inside each and every person it's, if they believe it. If they believe that Jesus it's either, yes, yes, he's coming back. Hope, joy, right? Or a sense of trepidation, fear. That's a little scary if that's true. I'm not ready for, uh, for judgment. I'm not ready for the Lord to settle accounts with me. But in either of those cases, you have to believe that it's happening for, for those emotions to be there. And the reason why we believe it's happening is not just because Jesus said it. It's because Jesus said he was going to rise from the dead. If Jesus said he was going to rise from the dead and he did, then we know that when he says he's coming back, he will. No matter how long, no matter how long he tarries, no matter how long the delay is, the interim, we know coming back if the resurrection is true. So our hope in his return is staked in the reality of the resurrection. Um, when he tells us that he's coming soon, when he tells us that he's going to return, what do we do in the meantime? What, what, what do we do while we're here? My touched on some of it because he unravels, Jesus unravels in, in, in Matthew 24 going to 25, some parables, like a cascade effect, bang, 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 one after another, focusing on this delay, and the, the delay is going to tempt people to disbelieve and turn to false teaching. So one thing we're supposed to do is be alert for false teachers, right? But that's not all we're supposed to do. In fact, there's some people that might kind of start getting that right, but the temptation that we're going to learn today is that it's easy to just sit tight as a Christian. Just don't listen to false teachers. Don't make any loud noise. Just keep your head down, stay low, and wait for his return. It's easy to be kind of a quiet Christian, just patiently waiting for Jesus and else to wrap everything up. That's not what Jesus wants. He wants productivity. He wants action. He wants influence. He wants increase. He wants us to be productive Christians. So let's look at that. Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. And what I want you to notice is how this parable adds a little bit of a different element than the ones we've been in previously. The parable of the ten virgins and the couple before that. It adds a little bit of a different element uh, in, in terms of the main focus. And that element is expectation. That Jesus is setting an expectation on believers. During that time while we await Christ's return, there's an expectation on his believers, on his followers. An expectation to be productive, to be doing, to be going and getting not to just sit tight, not to just sit quietly. We're beginning in verse 14. Going on a journey, who called his servants and 
To the one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done! Good and faithful servant, you have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Verse 22. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you do not, did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was mine, my own, with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It doesn't take a Bible scholar, I don't think, to read this passage and get a sense of what Jesus is is hinting at. Uh, That there is a sense in which there's going to be a time when Jesus, the Lord, will settle accounts with us and we're going to be held accountable with what we did in this interim time. Even though the master is gone for a long time, we're held accountable for how we handle the time that we have. That becomes very obvious. This as we look at uh, that. Um, look at verse 15. It says... Uh, to one he gave five talents, another two, to another one, to, to each according to his ability. Now, a talent is not like the way we use a talent, like a talent show and somebody shows off some kind of skill or something. A talent uh, was uh, a measurement of, of money. And, you know, scholars bicker back and forth about it. Um, how much was it? 
anything from 5,000. One commentator made a case that it was, uh, one talent was equal to $800,000 of our money today. But it's thousands of dollars. The exact amount is not important. What's important is the varying amounts that he gives. And why does he give varying amounts? Why does he do that? Because one of them's his favorite? No. Each according to his ability, verse 15. So there's varying levels of competency, varying levels of what they're able to do, and he gives them what's fair. He gives them a fair expectation. The five-talent guy, he gives them five. Why? Because he can handle five. The two-talent guy gives him two because according to his ability, he's able to handle two. And the one, look, he knows this guy's not going to be a a superstar, all right? He gives him one according to his ability. So fair expectation across the board. Not varying levels of expectation, just varying levels of abilities. I think that's important to note. Because as we think about the Lord settling accounts with us, it's easy for us to look to the left and to the right, and well, this, this guy, you know, <laughs> he opens his mouth, and eight people in a, in a McDonald's come to the Lord, you know. This, I don't have that. The Lord has given what he expects. So, he gives to them according to their ability. And then when we look at verses 16 to 18, we realize that the first two, even though they have different amounts to give back to the Lord, are equally successful because they both reproduce. Comes back with another five. The two guy comes back with another two. And the two guy doesn't get ripped for not bringing back five. He gets the same praise that the first guy got. He's been invested with five. He comes back with five. This guy's been invested with two. He comes back with two. He doesn't go, how come you didn't come up with five? See, that's why I originally gave you two. You're not as good as the five guy. The same praise is given uh, to those first two servants. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So both of the first guys get that praise. Now, even though they got the same praise, they get varying reward. They get, they get varying levels of reward, right? Because the five guy, he invested 100%, but he still gets more than what the two guy got. And some people don't believe that there's varying levels of reward in heaven. I, I, think, I think there is. I think we see that in Matthew. But what I, the point I forward to you is that Judgment Day is not just about doling punishment. When we think about the Lord settling accounts, it's also about doling reward. Isaiah started this. If we could put those verses up. I've got a couple verses here just to show you real quick. Isaiah 40, Behold, the Lord God comes with might. Arm rules for him. Well, that sounds scary, right? Like he's going to settle accounts. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Recompense includes both. Recompense means wages. Depends on what the person is due. The next passage, Isaiah 62. Behold, the Lord is proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him. And his recompense before him. Maybe we're so spiritual. We're like, no, I don't want any reward. I don't want any reward. 
it's good to look forward to reward. Why? Because God revealed it. And that's how he set it up. We don't know exactly what that is. I think some of the old school, maybe more fundamental camp, they're like actual mansions and literal crowns. And how many jewels am I going to get? I wonder if I'll get more than you. That's a little overboard. Jesus fulfills this. In Revelation chapter 22, Jesus speaking through the prophet John, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone. Now when we read that, it might sound scary. Oh my goodness, he's going to pay back for whatever. Well, evildoers should be scared. But those who are found in him are not excluded from that passage because there's reward. Of all places, one of my favorite verses of all places is Ecclesiastes. The last verse in that book, an undercredited book. I don't think we preach on it enough. I think we read it and we're like, that's kind of depressing and we skip it. The last verse, I think, is sort of the key that unlocks the whole book. Let's look at Ecclesiastes 12, 14. He's like, the world is a big place and everything is vanity, nothing with anything. Unless God is at the center of your life. And at the end, he says, because he will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, even the things that other people don't see. He's going to bring it into judgment, whether good or evil. Notice he includes good there. All the good things you do go unnoticed. God notices. And he's got reward. And that's part of Jesus settling accounts. So judgment is only scary for evildoers. But for those who are in him, it's, it's a time of, wow, here, here's what I invested. He goes, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. He, he's not going to come, good, that's what I thought you should have done. Now get over there. You've made it by the skin of your teeth, punk. You know, He rejoices. Enter into the joy of your master. He rejoices that you spent time and energy investing the way you should have been investing. You were productive for him while you were here. Yes, you had hard times. Yes, you struggled with that disease. Yes, you were hospitalized. Yes, some friends really betrayed you. But you hung in there. You persevered and you produced as a believer. And I rejoice over that. I'm going to give you more. More than I ever invested in you before. I'm going to give you more. It's awesome. But not everyone will be met with that. Because there are evildoers. And when we, when we think evildoers, we think, you know, rapists, murderers, you know, dictators, despots. But look at how this passage defines wickedness. The first two servants both produce 100% and they get varying levels of investment from the master and they get varying levels of reward from the master, but, but equal praise. And then verse 24 he also, who had received one, the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you do not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. In other words, you take what's not yours. You're, you're like a, a villainous landowner who takes crop from other people, and you know, uh, you're a tyrant. And so because you're so harsh and because you're so tyrannical and because you rule with such an iron fist, you know, hey, I was scared. So I hid it. Verse 25, it says, So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. I, mean, I didn't lose it. 
I didn't lose what you gave me. I just kept it and here, have it back. No harm, no foul. So he's blaming the master and getting himself off the hook. It was too hard. It was too difficult. You're, you know, I, what if I lost it? You'd kill me. You know, you're, you're, un, you're already unfair. You're not, you know, it, it's all you. Think of Adam. You know, the wife you gave me. I mean, uh, you know, it's just put the blame back on the Lord to let yourself off the hook. Beginning with the inception of sin in Genesis and echoed again in this parable. The master responds and basically tells him, you, you've just, that's true of me. All the more reason why he should have done If I'm this harsh taskmaster, you should have done something with it. You should have known that hiding it would have really ticked me off. Please, he's not saying, yes, I am that tyrant. He's, he's not agreeing with his exact description of him, but he's showing him how he just, he just stepped in his own, cra- his own trap. You thought I was going to say something else. I wasn't. <laughs> he, he hit his own tripwire. Why? By setting himself up like you're this tyrant who's going to smash down on the things that displease you. And he, the master's saying, well, then why did you do something that so obviously would displease me? He says, but his master said to him, you wicked and slothful servant, evil and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was mine with my own with interest. <laughs> Put it in a bank and let, it, let something happen with it. I'm not even asking you to go start a business. Just, just, just put it somewhere. Just do something with it. No. You hit it. And that was wicked. And that was slothful. That was evil. And that was lazy. He said he was afraid and that's why he hit it. I think that was his excuse. I don't think that was the reason. The real reason I don't think was that he was afraid. I think his excuse was that he was afraid. But the real reason is what the master says. He cuts to the heart of it. The real reason is wickedness and laziness. That's the real reason. So evil, it's evil because he disobeyed the master. And he disobeyed the master because he's lazy. What does a lazy person do? Nah, I don't want to do it. And, And one of the flags for a lazy person is they're full of excuses all the time. Oh, this, uh, what are you going to do, you know? This happened, that happened, I can't get this, that guy. Why have you lost your past previous five jobs? That that boss was a jerk. That place was too cold. That place was too hot. This place, kept other people kept passing me up. I got, you know what, sick of it. I have too much pride. Everybody passes me up and gets promoted in front of me. So I walked out, you know. It's always everyone else's fault. And so this wicked and lazy servant blames God, blames the economy, blames maybe the bank or something. And difficult it was for to please his master when none of that's true. The reality is, he didn't feel like it. It's not that he couldn't. He didn't want to. Too many other things going on. Too much at stake. Eh, too hard. But what the master wanted was investment. 
I read this interesting quote. I, I thought it was pretty good. You remember the parable of the foolish virgins that Aaron preached on last week? They ran out of oil, and then the bridegroom comes, and it's like, oh, we should have had extra oil, right? Listen to this quote. The foolish virgins failed from their thinking their part too easy. The wicked servant fails from thinking his part too hard. Right? The, fo- the foolish virgin is like, meh, we got this. There's enough oil, who cares? The, the, the wicked servant is like, oh, it's, it's, it's too much. It's too much to do. I got to go. And if he was one of the virgins, he would have said, it's too much oil. It's too far of a hike. I would have had to go and ask for money. And then what, you know, what if I drop it? What if I lose my place in line? I want to be first. Nah, never mind. It's too much. Too much is being expected. And even though he only has one talent, right? So his ability is low. The expectation is low. And the master's not upset because he didn't get five. The master's not upset because he didn't get two. The master's upset because he did nothing. And so even though he hid the talent and the master comes back and he says, here, I at least have what you gave me. Master essentially is saying, the reason why I gave you that is not to hold on to it. I didn't give you that for safekeeping. I gave you that for investment. And you didn't invest. In other words, if you're going to be a slave of mine, a servant of mine, you have to be an investor. If you're not an investor and you're just a safekeeper, out. I mean, he gets kicked out. So, this slave, this servant, was not ready for the settling of accounts with his master. Jesus is making a parallel with his return and that this is what his return will be like. That some will be ready and some will be rewarded and then some will not. And of those people that are ready, some produce more than others. That's okay. They produce according to what God has invested in them, but some will not be ready. But notice the theme that Matthew puts here. He doesn't often contrast the killer, the rapist, the murderer with the believer. He's constantly contrasting the genuine believer with the fake believer. The one that supposedly has God's invested in him and he's in it and he's not. The one that's supposed to be a servant of the master but really in the end actually he's not. The one who's supposed to be about the business, his master's business, but really he's not about the master's business. I mean there's people in the world that are like, forget the master, I could care less about this guy. And it's obvious but then there's people that they're, they're like one foot in, one foot out, and they're not really doing what they're supposed to be doing, and they get the big surprise at the end. You remember back in Matthew 7, there's guys that are going to come to him on that day, and they're going to say, I, I prophesied in your name. We were good preachers. We cast out demons in your name. We did many miracles, mighty works in your name. Who are you? I, I don't know you. Depart from me. You workers of lawlessness. They're wicked. Remember in Amos when God says, oh, you're singing all these songs and you got the music right and the chords are right? It hurts my ears. Stop it. Because your hearts are far from me. External religion does nothing. And Matthew, again and again and again, is putting to, bringing into the stream of what he's writing, uh, Jesus teaching that there are people that are going to be in the church, about the church, supposedly love the Lord, but they don't. They either get duped by false teachers when times get tough, or they just 
Stay low. Stay quiet. Bury it. And just wait. And hope that the Lord is satisfied that at least they weren't a murderer. At least it wasn't as bad as that guy. Here, have your talent back. And it's not going to fly. The master didn't call that servant just lazy. Wicked and lazy. In fact, when you read through the Proverbs, there's this contrast of wisdom and evil, wisdom and foolishness, righteousness and wickedness. And sloth, idleness, laziness is continually equated with evil, wickedness. Now, we, we don't just mean like, oh, I want to make myself breakfast, but uh, it just would take too long. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the things that God expects of you and you don't do it because it's too hard. Well, Jesus did it. Yeah, but Jesus was the perfect God, man. I mean, I'm not the perfect God, man. Excuses all the time. Why? So Jesus' clear expectation is that in the meantime, while we're waiting His return, while we await to meet the Lord, there's an expectation to produce. Now the question naturally becomes, produce what? Right? Produce how? There's so many ways we could go with this sermon. Tithe more? Um... I don't go to church more. What is it? Feed the hungry. Well, what are we doing? Producing what? Investing how? What is he talking about? Well, rule number one, when you're having a question, you're reading a passage and you have a question, before you jump even to other books, try to stay within the passage that you are. Try to stay as close as you can to the context of what you're reading to pick up clues because Matthew doesn't want his reader to be confused, right? He wants to drop clues for you. So there are all kinds of places we can go in the Bible to answer that question, but I want to stay right here. We're going to look at two verses. The first one is verse 14. Verse 14. And when we read Scripture, it's easy to skip the first few verses, right? Because just, we're just so used to how Scripture sounds. But For it will be like a man going on a journey. For what will be? That's our question, right? What is he talking about? But what, is it, what is this whole deal? What is this whole parable referencing? Well, you skip your eyes up to 25.1. What was the parable of the ten virgins about? Because they're not completely separate parables. They're building on one another. The kingdom of God. You know, Matthew's message throughout is that Jesus is king. Jesus preached the kingdom. Taught his disciples to preach the kingdom. This kingdom that was constantly being failed by weak human kings in the Old Testament is now going to be fulfilled with a perfect king, the one who's come, the son of David. And so Jesus is saying the kingdom is going to happen now. It's happening now. It's not going to be perfectly fulfilled like it will be, but it's starting even now. As people are getting saved, as people are coming to the Lord, God is establishing his kingdom on this earth, not in a human temple or in a physical nation with actual boundaries but through a people right that's the kingdom and so what is this parable about it's about the kingdom and when he says i'm investing in you to do what you're supposed to be doing and you haven't it has to do something with how we partake in the kingdom and we know that it's not enough to just come to church and just be a member on a roll no The other one I want to look at is the 14th verse of the previous chapter, 24, 14. 
Jesus gives a lot of indication of how bad things are going to get. There's going to be a lot of progression while Jesus is gone, right? And most of the progression is from bad to worse. More false teachers, more persecution, more destruction, wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, okay? There's one progression that's positive in all of that. Only one progression that he gives that this is going to progress and advance and it's positive. It's what the, the one thing that's good in light of everything getting bad and worse. In 24.14, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So why hasn't the end come yet? The gospel needs to go out. We made this case a couple of weeks ago. Why hasn't Jesus returned yet? Because all those that he wants to bring into his fold aren't in yet. All those who are supposed to hear the message haven't heard yet. So we need to get to work. We can't take this parable, rip it out, and just stuff anything we want in it. We have to at least recognize that what, what, what Jesus has in mind as he's giving this to his disciples is missional. That he wants them to expand his kingdom, to live out verse twenty four fourteen. This is what the kingdom of God is like. Some people invest in it. They're invested in and they produce. Others, other people don't produce anything. And you know what? They're not really part of the kingdom. To be a true citizen of the kingdom, you are a productive worker. Some of us produce at different levels because we've been invested in at different levels. And that's fine. But we all go 100%. We all go 100%. Our lives aren't defined by excuses. Well, he's been a small group leader for so many years. I don't know what to say. Um, that person's you know, been Christian for so long. I don't know how to do that. that that's a sign of somebody who just is not in it. But a, a true kingdom citizen is going to go 100% in what they can do to advance Christ's kingdom. To proclaim it. Proclaim the gospel to the nations, to the world around us. Uh, boy, there's a lot of ways to apply that. Right? Because we could say, we could say, give more money. Uh, the church needs it. Right? That's true. I think we should be giving financially to support missions, missional work. How else does missions happen? if not for the church going out and, and proclaiming. And some of us, you know, we were called to go out into different places of the world. In other words, they're called to send those and support them, pray for them. But the giving, I think, is a, is a big part of it. I think that's too narrow of a pigeonhole. Any skill, any resource, any gifting, spiritual gifting, actual gift, Amazon gift card, I don't care, Anything that has come your way, it's a blessing of God. This is why we pray before we eat. I don't know what you teach your kids. So why do we pray before we eat? We say, let's bless the food. Well, I'm not blessing the food like it's bad calories and now it's good calories because I prayed over it. You know, we, we say grace. What, what does it say grace? We try to teach our kids, you know, that we're, all of this, all of this comes from God. I mean, the, the guy that cooked it in the kitchen that wouldn't even know how to cook if he didn't, if he didn't uh, have that gift from the Lord and 
and, and these vegetables wouldn't have grown if, if Jesus, Colossians 1, wasn't holding everything together so that we can still produce vegetation on this planet. Uh, it's all from God. And so everything that we get, God is investing in us. It's a blessing that we have. And some of us are blessed in different ways than others at various levels. Somebody might have more money. Somebody might have more skills. Somebody might have more experience. Somebody might have more personal connections. What Jesus is looking for is how we leverage those things that we've been entrusted with. Talents, skills, resources, funds, connections to advance his kingdom. Now, we, we don't necessarily have to get all entrepreneurial about it. You see someone and they're, they're hurting. In your mind, do you flip that to the pastor or to somebody else or maybe someone who's closer to them or knows them longer? Or do you take the onus and say, you know what, hey, can we grab lunch? What, what are the things that you're good at so that you can invite people to it and do something and you have their attention, you can talk to them about the Lord? There, there's to think about how to apply this, but it has to start with a desire and a willingness to be a productive servant. So we need to come before the Lord and ask Him, Lord, how, how, can, I, how can I better use my time? When I stand there before the Lord and look back on my calendar, when Jesus pulls up my GCAL, what is it going to be most full of? And the things that are filled in there, how am I using them to connect with other people? You know, I've been feeling really guilty because we go to all these basketball games with Raquel and I see a lot of parents and the only exchange I do with the other dads is, and they go, because we've seen each other, right? I don't know their names, I don't know, squandered opportunity. Maybe I can at least ask them, you know, hey, what's your, so where are you from? Where do you work? How old is your daughter now? Oh, she plays great, whatever. Squandered opportunities. If Jesus were to look at the calendar... How many of those opportunities and things that we've been given do we use to advance the kingdom? Or do we just hide it? All right. Go to the basketball game, the girls play, we go home, they didn't bother me, I didn't bother them, we just give each other a manly head nod, and it's over. It's safe. God doesn't want safe. He wants investment. Let's pray. Father, we are, We are glad that you are not an unfair, villainous, tyrannical taskmaster that asks us to do more than what is possible. We thank you that you protect us from temptations that are too much for us to bear and only give us what is manageable given our maturity level in you. We thank you that you've not given us more than we can handle in terms of how much we make or how much time we have in our calendar, or the people that we know, or the skills and the talents that we have. But you've given us just enough according to our ability, according to what you can expect of us to invest. And we pray that we wouldn't be disobedient. We pray that we wouldn't be lazy. We pray that we wouldn't be filled with excuses, but rather surrender it to you, Step out on a limb a little bit and proclaim your gospel in the various ways that we can. We need your grace to do that. Please help us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you're able, let's stand and close in a song together.
Father, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit, Lord, those of us that know you, to, to go out and invest to advance your kingdom, to take that more seriously than anything else uh, that we have uh, before us in this time. That's the way of the good and faithful servant, and we need you to work that in us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The Lord is coming and his reward is with them. Let's get to work. Amen. All right. God bless you.